Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, and can you believe it? We're already up to our second edition of Extra Helpings, and of course we're looking at episodes four to six, which means in episode four, Mikey, mm-hmm. we were talking about the great Russian expansion, weren't we, and how it all came to a sudden halt when they met the Japanese at the Battle of Tsushima. Now, you might not be surprised to hear this, but I did get a few tweets, because of course, you know, in my old days when I used to do the, the travel writing in my Silk Road books, I often talked about the Trans-Siberian Railway, which we touched upon in the Russian expansion. And if any of you did see the maps that we put out, you'll realise, of course, in the original form, it wasn't so much Trans-Siberian as Trans-Manchurian, because, oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, the, the railways would go straight through Manchuria to get to Vladivostok. It was only later in the 1930s that they were made <laughs> by the Chinese to go round through the Siberia, through the top. But as we said in that episode, the original expansion started a lot earlier, didn't it, with Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. And you've got a few more stories on Peter. Yes, but I really wanted to talk about Peter the Great because he wasn't so much a great emperor, he was a great pisspot. <laughs> There's one myth about Peter the Great that's always stuck in my craw. They talk about the, when he was prince. Well, what's the proper word for that? Tsarevich. When he was Tsarevich, he would sort of sneak through Europe and turn up at docks pretending to be a worker and go surreptitiously underground and learn shipbuilding. Right. Well, for a start, the guy's two metres tall, which is tall now, let alone in 1698. Yeah. And secondly, he travelled an entourage of a couple of hundred guys with him. <laughs> Not exactly incognito then. No, but one thing he was very fond of was drink. Right. He loved the grog. And in 1698 in England, this caused a bit of trouble. Mm. Now, you would have heard of a guy called John Evelyn. Yeah, the diarist. Yeah, yep. he, like, seriously, in his day, as famous as Samuel Pepys as, as yes. a diarist. Well, what happens is Peter the Great and his entourage arrive in England mm. as decided that John Evelyn will give up his home for him. Oh, right. Which is in a suburb called Deptford. Okay, yeah. Which I hear is not much chopped these days. Not these days, but back then it would have been quite nice. Well, it was a stately manor home with spectacular gardens. Mm. So Peter the Great and his mates move in. Well, within a few weeks, Evelyn's getting letters from the staff saying, his servants saying, you've got to get back to Deptford. (laughs) And then he gets letters imploring him to come back as soon as humanly possible. So what happens is Evelyn goes back and he discovers that Peter, he loved the English beer, ordering copious amounts. And also, too, they have letters where he's asking the brewers to make it stronger. This did not end well for Evelyn's house in Deptford. Mm. First thing you notice, we had, he had this major art collection. Mm. Well, there were bullet holes in a lot of the paintings. And also, too, tiny little pinpricks. Because mm. Peter and his drunken mates were playing darts with his pictures. <sighs> there was, and no one knows why... Oil and grease all up and down the hallway. Okay. And vomit and urine all over the rather expensive oriental carpets. There was bullet holes through all the windows. And let's not forget, glass was not cheap. Right. Even at the end of the 17th century. But the worst thing was, I mentioned Deptford at those times. It was a stately home. Mm. And it had massive gardens. Mm. And the pride of these gardens were the hedgerows. Right. Yeah, well, uh, Peter and his drunken Yobbo friends, their favourite game was to get plastered 
and shoved through the hedgerows in wheelbarrows. Uh, they, was, they destroyed the wall. They absolutely trashed the place. Oh, dear. Evelyn complained, and he was actually compensated. Right. Not by Peter the Great, but by the British government. who <laughs> just want the whole scandal to go away. Ooh. But here's the thing. Back in those days, mm. Peter and his drunken mates, they were known as the Jolly Company. Right. Now, you would assume that when he became Tsar, he'd leave that stuff in the past. Right. No. Well, actually, he makes it grander. His travelling drunken entourage are now known as the all-joking, all-drunken synod of fools and jesters. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, well, actually, more than a few Russians took offence with Peter and his friends. They said it was anti-church. Ah. And it didn't help that the uh, synod had a few commandments. Like Bacchus be worshipped with strong and honourable drinking and receive his just dues. And all goblets were to be emptied promptly. And members were to get drunk every day and never go to bed sober. Wow. But Peter said that, look, he was just joking. I'm not having a go at the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. I'm having a go at the Catholics. Yes. Even at the point where he had his mate, Nikita Zotov, who was a major drinker. He was called King Pope of the Synod. <laughs> but here's the problem. Mm. Back in the old days, he and his drunken mates just touring around Europe. Mm. Well, now they're touring around Russia. Right. And now he's Tsar, and he's got a lot more drunken mates. A bit close to home, yes. Not just close to home, mate. If he turned up at, say, not one of the wealthier nobles' houses, mm. a weekend with Peter and his synod could bankrupt you. Yes. In fact, mate, there was one guy in Moscow, a nobleman known as France Lafort. Mm. France complained to Peter. The, these pop-ins were costing him a fortune. Yeah. He must have gotten Peter the Great on a good day. Right. Because instead of being banished, Peter the Great builds him a new banquet hall, which yeah. he keeps fully stocked. Nice. On the proviso that there is no such thing as a closed-door policy. Ah. So he and his mates can pop in any time. Yeah. No, mate, not so good for Lafort because he would often have 1,500 drunk Russian noblemen at his house for the weekend. And he couldn't say no. And he couldn't say no. <laughs> All right, so that brings us on to episode five, and Mikey's Howler, Bear for the Nation. Ah, the D.W. Griffiths film that single-handedly re-raised the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, so that's it, Mikey, a real howler, wasn't it? But I don't want you to have all the fun, so so I've done a little bit of digging into the movie industry too, because looking into Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s, I have to say I was a little bit surprised at what I found. Did you know, Mikey, in 1932-33, which of course is when Herbert Hoover was in the White House. You know, not, one, not one of the great presidents, let's be honest. No, and particularly not at the end of his term in 33. Well, it turns out that during this period, there was a big push amongst the Hollywood studios for charismatic populists on the silver screen. In fact, it's such a push for the right-wing cause that it's gone down as the dictator craze. The dictator craze? I've never heard of that. Well, first up, you've got a movie called The Power and the Glory. Now, this is not the Graham Greene novel. This is a movie directed by William K. Howard. But like the title suggests, you know, The Power and the Glory, it's all about building up the big man. In this case, the fictional railroad tycoon, Tom Garner. And he's played by Spencer Tracy, right? Exactly, Mikey. Just about the most expensive actor of the day. So that gives you an idea of how much money the studios were throwing at the idea. Right. Anyway, it's a classic rags to riches story, you know, the pauper to plutocrat. And it's about Tom Garner, who personally is flawed, but professionally is flawless. Not only does he become the preeminent businessman of his day, but more importantly, he's the tough guy, the authoritarian boss who goes in single-handedly to smash the unions, brings the workers to heel, and isn't afraid of the consequences. 
which in this case is the death of hundreds of workers in a wild labour riot. Now, this is fictional, right? <laughs> it is, Mikey, but it doesn't stop the studio bosses building him up to be a hero. So much so that despite this massacre, and despite Garner's love life and personal life being a complete mess, he actually ends up committing suicide. Despite all this, the end reel of the movie asks this big question... Was Tom Garner right to run the railroads the way he did? And the answer that the movie delivers is yes. Wow. And they quickly follow up that movie with another very similar storyline. This time it's Roy Del Ruth's employee's entrance. Warren William, you know, it is magnetic worst. And just to give you an idea, Mikey, I'll give you a couple of quotes. Mm -hmm. First up, there's no room for sympathy or softness. My code is smash or be smashed. Okay. And then... When a man outlives his usefulness, he ought to jump out of a window. Well, so this guy makes Gordon Gekko look like Mother Teresa. So as if that's not enough, Mikey, Columbia Pictures then hit back with a 76-minute compilation of newsreel clips about none other than Il Duce, Mussolini himself, and they deliver their offering, Mussolini Speaks. What? <laughs> yeah, I know, and not just that, Mikey. They even get the renowned NBC radio commentator, Lowell Thomas. He's in charge of describing and interpreting the newsreel clips. And make no mistake, Mikey, you know, Columbia Pictures really do lay it on thick. The pre-credit says, This picture is dedicated to a man of the people whose deeds for his people will ever be an inspiration to all mankind. And then Thomas himself concludes the movie with the enthusiastic, and I'll quote again, this is a time when a dictator comes in handy. Wow. And so this gets shown in America, right? That's right. And in all the promotional blurb, you've got lines like, it appeals to all red-blooded Americans. It might be the answer to America's needs. Whoa. And I'm afraid to say, Mikey, it works. You had the Palace Theatre in New York, 175,000 people go and see the movie in the first two weeks. And press accounts say that not only were there rounds of applause and hand claps, but the audiences cheered time and time again. Watching footage of Mussolini. I know, but as if that's not weird enough, Mikey, is then followed up with Walter Wanger's Gabriel Over the White House, another movie to come out in 1933. Now this time, just to give you an idea how much... The movie studios were behind this. Gabriel over the White House comes with uncredited contributions from the media mogul William Randolph Hearst himself. Yeah, never a good sign when Hearst's grubby name pops up. Yeah, well, it's pretty clear from the outset that he's pretty keen to push the idea that your nation's state is better off with an energetic tyrant than a passive president like Herbert Hoover. And just to make sure you know, the audience is in no doubt here, Mikey, they actually cut in and out of authentic newsreel images you know, from the inauguration of Hoover when he became president with shots of a fictitious inauguration of a president by the name of Judd Hammond, who's played by Walter Houston. Really? Now, the way they portray this Judd Hammond, you know, he's the polished-faced poster boy of the Republican Party, but he's also got that sort of immature, inattentive side where he's prone to the sins of the flesh. You know, for example, halfway through, they've got the mistress showing up in the White House, strolling across the presidential seal on the floor. Sounds familiar. Well, shock horror, Hammond goes off on a reckless drive out into the country, has a crash, gets knocked into a coma, and when he comes out of the coma... <laughs> they have this ridiculous device whereby yeah, the divine spirit of Gabriel comes and talks to him and tells him what he needs to do. So he checks himself out of hospital, he calls Congress into session, he declares martial law and seizes dictatorial power. 
all on the promise that he's going to deliver the US out of the chaos of the depression and restore law and order. And that's the plot of the movie, right? Yeah, they certainly don't leave any room for interpretation, Mikey, because as soon as he's back behind his resolute desk, he's immediately taking on a group called the Army of the Unemployed, which is very clearly a stand-in for the real historical figures, the bonus marchers who marched on Washington in the summer of 1932. Right. And he also takes on a gangster called Nick Diamond, who's pretty obviously Al Capone. And as I said before, when it's about to open, it's being massively backed by the movie mogul Hearst, There's huge publicity all over the States and it's very clear to anyone in Hollywood that this is his number one prestige project. In fact, the movie goes as far as to say that if you had voted for Hammond, there would have been no depression. And this rubbish got released? Well, that's the thing, Mikey. Fortunately, no, because the Hayes office, which is the censor um, in the States, they flatly refused to pass the picture in its original form because they say, and this is their quote, The movie's depiction of reality is a dangerous item at this time. And the good news is that means the movie ends up getting delayed and that delay is just long enough for the new election to happen, for Hoover to get kicked out, for FDR to be put in the White House. And that means, of course, that he can introduce his game-changing New Deal. Unfortunately for America, it seems that almost immediately, once that New Deal is in place, the whole sort of fever, right-wing fever, not just in Hollywood, but across the country, that fever breaks and spirits seem to be so readily lifted that suddenly these dictator-crazed movies, yeah, movies like Power and the Glory and the weird Gabriel over the White House, not only do they come across as irrelevant, but they turn out to be box office flops. Okay, mate, so in that episode, we were talking about right-wing wackadoos in the early 20th century. So I thought we'd have a little look at the futurists in Italy. Okay. Often get overlooked. Now, the futurists are a sort of a aesthetic, art, philosophy, political movement right. that starts in the early 20th century. And mm-hmm. look, its defenders proclaimed it was, it was a response to the rapid technological age of the era. Mm. And look, it did embrace dynamism, speed, change, urbanisation, but it was also way too fond of violence, militarism and empire building, as was a particularly toxic strand of masculinity. Oh. Now, of course, it's Italy in the 20s. So, look, I'm not saying all futurists were fascists and all fascists were futurists, but there's some crazy points of the Venn diagram of weird where they (laughs) intersect. Right. And strangely enough, it's pasta. Mate, you know what? You know it was going to be food. There's a guy called Filippo Tomasa Marinetti. He's a poet, an editor, and an art theorist. Mm. In 1909, he's the author of The Futurist Manifesto. Mm. He's a, a prolific writer and provocateur, but he's also responsible for The Futurist Cookbook. It's released in 1930, and it's pretty wacky. Go on. Okay, I'll read you some of his manifesto. Futurist cooking will be free of the old obsessions with volume and weight and will have as one of its principles the abolition of pasta. (laughs) Pasta, however agreeable to the palate, is a backward-looking food because it makes people heavy, brutish, deludes them to thinking it is nutritious, making them sceptical, slow and pessimistic. (laughs) What, he launches a war on pasta? Yes, mate, and it's picked up by Mussolini. Okay. Mussolini actually said... A nation of spaghetti eaters cannot restore Roman civilization. Mm. Mussolini had two reasons not to like pasta. One was, well, for a start, it was actually costing them quite a bit to import the wheat. Okay. But also, to it tied in with some of the weirdo futurist ideas about, well, pasta and, and virility. 
Mm. In fact, uh, our good mate Marinetti also writes, and pasta is antiviral because a heavy bloated stomach does not encourage physical enthusiasm for a woman, mm. nor favour the possibility of possessing her at any time. That'll put you off your Ariana. <laughs> But, mate, when it comes to weird, I'm going to give you a genuine recipe from the Futurist cookbook. Go on. Raw meat torn about by trumpet blasts. Trumpet. This is a genuine recipe. Go on. Cut a perfect cube of beef, pass an electric current through it, then marinate it for 24 hours in a mixture of rum, cognac and white vermouth. Mm. Rear, remove it from the mixture and serve on a bed of red pepper, black pepper and snow. 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 Each mouthful is to be chewed carefully for one minute, and each mouthful is divided from the next by vehement blast on the trumpet blown by the eater himself. Bring your own trumpet. That's yeah. He's blowing his own bloody trumpet, mate. All right. Well, that brings us to our last episode, episode six, and my hero Matakivi. And I'm glad to say, mate, I've got some nice tweets in on this one, particularly from some of our listeners over in the UK. Because you remember I was talking about that guy, Ranjit Singh, yeah, the Lion of Punjab, who was the Maharaja of the Sikh state, and how, unfortunately, it all came tumbling down mm. with the Sikh wars against the British Raj. Well, when the Brits brought that Sikh state tumbling down, they didn't just defeat the Sikh military, they also stole their cannons. And those cannons now sit on the lawns of Chelsea Hospital in London for all of us to see today. Yeah, what is it with the English and putting a cannon on only bit of spare lawn available? Yes, well, I've looked it up and they certainly are there. So I suppose we can still see Ranjat Singh to this day. But if I'm going to talk about Sikh heroes, there is one story that I have been asked to mention. And to be honest, Mike, it'd be unfair not to include it. Because this really is a story about heroes. 20 Sikh heroes, to be precise, fighting alongside the British Raj at the end of the 19th century. I'm talking about the Battle of Saragari. I mean, this really is one of those classic last stand jobs. I'm talking about 1897. It's the fallout from the Second Afghan War. You've got hordes of Afghan tribesmen coming over the Afghan border into what is modern-day northern Pakistan. Now, the accounts tell us there's between 12 and 24,000 of these Oryxai and Afridi tribesmen in the attack. They're heading for the fort of Gulistan in the hope of cutting it off from the other fort, Fort Lockhart, down the road. And by the 12th of September, they're laying siege to Saragari, which is essentially a sort of watchtower outpost protecting both the forts. So the Afghan army are preparing for the mass final assault, and all that stands in their way is this great guy called F.G. Havildar Ishar Singh and his 20 Sikh compatriots who refuse to surrender. So that's 21 guys against 24,000. That's right. And each of them's fighting right to the death until the last man standing, Sepoy Gurmukh Singh, he single-handedly takes down another 40 Afghans with him. He's saying he'll never come out alive so that the only way they can kill him is by setting fire to the watchtower post. And this is where we get the report from the contemporary observers saying that he was heard... Screaming repeatedly as he died, the Sikh battle cry, Bole si nihal satri akal, blessed eternally, he who says that God is the ultimate truth. Okay, that is one hard guy. That's right, Mikey, and I'm glad to say not just him, but all 21 of these soldiers were posthumously awarded the Indian 
Order of Merit, which is essentially the highest gallantry award you can be given. And to this day, the Indian Army's 4th Battalion, which is the Sikh Regiment, it still commemorates the battle every 12th of September as Saragari Day. So I think we've got time for one more story, mate. And remember that episode I was talking about how curry went through you know, the East you know, via various trade routes and battles? Well, the last story, I'm going to tie it all together. I've got a food story. I'm going to mention noodles, which takes us back to Mussolini and the right-wingers, and also to the Battle of Tsushima and Japanese militarism. It's the story of ramen. Ramen? Yeah, mate. Not the instant noodles. I'm talking about the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Now, you'd always thought that ramen was one of those things that was centuries old in Japan. Mm. But it looks like it was actually brought over by Chinese workers at the end of the 19th century. Right. And in fact, the first Japanese ramen restaurant only opens in 1910. Mm. You now, it's broth and it's noodles and it's barbecued pork. It never really takes over. But a couple of things happen in 1945. Right. Well, obviously, Japan loses the war. Mm. When it loses the war, it loses its colonies, its territories in China and Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the Americans also have an occupying force. But on top of that, Japan suffers its worst rice harvest in over 40 years. Mm. Now, the Americans have got bucket loads of wheat. I mean, America is a wheat-producing country. Sure. So they send wheat over with this force. In fact, bread consumption in three years trebles in Japan. In Japan. Yeah, but here's the thing. Wheat can be used for other things as well as bread. Mm. Like noodles. Like noodles. Like ramen noodles. Ah. So ramen noodles take off again. In fact, by the end of 1945, they reckon there are about 45,000 black market ramen stalls in Tokyo alone. Wow. Now, vendors are selling ramen from wheeled carts mm. called yatai, and they announce their presence by the distinctive sound of a flute being played. Mm. And here's the thing. They're illegal. Right. There are thousands of arrests all over Tokyo, mm. all over Japan. So these black market cart ramen guys mm. need protection. Ah. Enter the Yakuza. Yakuza. The Japanese mafia. Yeah, the guys with all the tattoos. Here's the thing. The Yakuza had almost died out by this stage. Mm. But this was a massive market because not only could they offer protection to the storeholders, mm. they could get the black market wheat and lard needed right. to make the ramen. Now, the Yakuza had been around since the Edo period. Mm. In fact, the name Yakuza actually comes from an old Japanese card game, a mm. bit like Baccarat or Blackjack. Mm. It's the worst hand you can get. Ah. In fact, the literal translation is good for nothing. Ah, right. So the Yakuza sweep in. They are running the ramen stalls in Japan. And as I said, they sort of died out. But this brings more money into this mafia organization. Mm. So it's not long when they're not just running the vendors. They're also running the restaurants, the markets, the trucking, as well as the first version of Tokyo's taxi fleet. Ah. Because while well, you've got the new officers coming in, the American officers, the Americans, yeah. they want taxis to drive them around the city. <laughs> so hang on, Maki. You're saying the whole rebirth of the Yakuza was down to ramen. Well, along with gambling prostitution and loan sharking. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. Next week, and look, I'm afraid to say that next week, neither you or me or Paul or anyone's got any say in it. It's April Fool's, and that's no April Fool. April Fool's. 